Thanks, y'all. Good morning, everybody. How we doing? We good? Seven more shopping days till Christmas. Isn't it funny that that's the way we keep time? Actually, it's not funny that that's the way we keep time. That's intentional. It's intentional because um, I don't know if you've noticed this about our celebration of this time of year. It tends to be a little consumeristic. Have you noticed? You know, we tend to not only get obsessed with the, the purchasing of things, but we tend to put our hopes in it. I know I'm not the only one who has the like 12:30, 1 o'clock blues on Christmas Day. When you open all the stuff and it doesn't really do what you thought it was going to do. Or when you're my age and, and older, you watch your kids open all the stuff and it doesn't really do what you thought it would do for them. Everything disciples us in some way, shape, or form. Even the way we keep calendar, which is one of the reasons why we celebrate Advent. It was, you know, the, I know that in the Protestant tradition, we're, we're, if you're new to church, we're, what's one of the traditions we're a part of is the Protestant tradition in the West. And, and the, I know that the Protestants, we've, we've pushed back really hard against a lot of the, what we call the, like, the pomp and all that stuff and the church calendar being part of it. We're like, ah, it's not in the Bible. And it's right, it's not, it's not, it's not. It's not commanded. It's not something that we have to do as Christians. But one of the reasons, the original reason why the church decided to kind of order their year in a given story was to redeem in their minds the calendar to use time as telling the story of Jesus and there's some good reason for that as we tend to just really easily fall into that well-worn rut of whatever it is that our culture finds valuable right well I haven't even started preaching yet so uh, let me let me do that as I said, we're, we're spending this Advent season, this, these, these four weeks preceding the celebration of Christmas, looking at the longings of the people during the time of Jesus, where they had gone through 400 years of waiting just for God to speak, and then, and then thousands of years up to that point of waiting for God to come and answer his promise to make the world right again. And we enter into that longing, the longing for Jesus first coming through Advent as a way to kind of kind of focus our hearts into longing for his second, right? Longing for those things that we want to see made right. And so that's why we do this. And two weeks ago, we looked at the song that Mary, Jesus' mom, sung in response to hearing that she would be the one to give birth to God in the flesh. Last week, we, we looked to the song of John the Baptist's dad, right? Zechariah, as he was singing about God coming to heal the world through forgiving sin, putting things to right. And this morning... Probably the most famous of these songs, made famous by a cartoon boy with a blue blanket. It's the song of the angels. So let's stand in honor of God's word. If you've got a Bible, you can open it to Luke 2. If not, it's all right. I'll be reading it for you. This is God's word to us. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Jesus, if you don't speak during this time, we are all just wasting hours. Forgive us when we come too uh, casually to your word. Have mercy on us when we find that we've heard it all. Have mercy on us when we, in fact, through distraction and boredom or whatever it is, just close ourselves off, close our ears, close our heart. Have mercy on us by opening those ears and opening our hearts. Don't let us do that this morning, Lord. And Lord, don't, don't let the one who talks get in the way. Make your name famous this morning, Lord. Preach your word to us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Just a little over a week ago, commemorated the 43rd anniversary of the death of John Lennon. Lennon, of course, is known for many things, right? The British Invasion, the Mop Top, the worst Christmas song ever written. Thank you. All right. Man, it's a terrible one, right? What is arguably his, his most famous song revolves around one word. Imagine. I'm sure you've heard it. Imagine no heaven, no hell, nothing to kill or die for, no religion, all that fun stuff. You know, for all of its simplicity and iconic status, what that song really is, is the musings of someone looking around the world, seeing that nothing is right, and trying to put his thoughts together over what it would be that would fix it. What would fix it? What would make, what would, what would the ideal world be? That's what he's doing. Imagine. It's one man's vision, his version of something the Bible talks about as well. In fact, it's what this song is about, the song that the angels are singing. And the difference between the two really comes down to a difference in what you think the problem is. And our text this morning gives us more than an idyllic picture that belongs or that doesn't belong so much in a children's book than it does in life. It declares something. It declares something that has come to be, not something that could be. It's something that has come to be. This, this song of the angels announces the coming of peace. It announces the coming of glory because it announces the coming of Christ. As always, there's an outline if you want to take notes. If not, don't worry about it. But let's Let's begin looking at this as a universal song by looking at the audience. Look down at verse 8. So the scene is painted for us, right? The scene is painted for us like this. And there was in that region shepherds watching their, keeping watch over their flocks by night. It sounds pretty, doesn't it? Because we have this idyllic picture in our heads of what that must have been like. The moon's shining, the stars. They're all out there. Sheep are sleeping. We have this, it is a scene that's been influenced to us by Hallmark 
and pictures and Linus. But the problem is, is that this image has nothing to do with the image that saying this would have had on those who first heard it. Because here's the, here's the main difference, right? In our culture, shepherds, that's like a really cool thing, right? They're like, they're like the first regenerative farmers, you know, like we think they're pretty awesome. They're like the no steroids, no antibiotic guys, like, but that's not exactly what they were. In first century Judea, to say that someone was a shepherd was to say that they were the lowest of the low. Not only were they peasants, uh, not only were they poor, but they were considered, in, in most cases, uh, criminals because they were. Uh, keeping the sheep doesn't pay the bills, and you're out along the roads at night. So it's really easy to rough somebody up and take what's, on, what's in their pockets. And that's what they did. Do you find it interesting that these are the people that God chose to kind of sing to about the coming of Jesus? It's like if you were about to announce the coming of the great king, are you thinking, you know what, I need to go find some crooks and I'm going to sing and let them know that this is happening so they'll run off and they'll go find my boy. Like that's not what you're thinking. And yet, for some reason, God, when he decides to bring good news, he doesn't bring it to those that you'd think he would bring it to. He, he brings it to those people who are petty thieves working the night shift. From the start, this news, this song is for the unlikely. But it's not just that, though. Look down at verse 10. The angel shows up, lights up the sky, tells him to not be afraid. And then he says, the reason that I don't want you to be afraid is because I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. All the people. Not most. Not some. Not all of us around here. And what the angels are announcing is not simply good news for Jewish folks. He's announcing good news for all people, not even just like one little group of people, all people, all the peoples of the world are to hear the message of this birth and find in it good news, that it is for them. And then, then lastly, in terms of audience, look down at verse 11, the angel says, because to you this day is born in the city of David, a savior, if you have your Bible, I want you to underline that word, we'll get back to it in a second, who is Christ the Lord, underline that too. Here's why this matters. This, this gospel, what we call a gospel, it's really one of the stories of Jesus' life, is written by this guy named Luke. And Luke was a highly educated Greek person, right? And he's writing to other, to another, uh, at least scholars mostly think, that he's writing to another highly educated uh, Greek-speaking person in the Roman world. And to a highly educated Greek-speaking person in the Roman world, there are three words in that statement that are a really big deal. Those three words that would have been particularly meaningful, no, that's not the right word. They wouldn't have been meaningful. They would have been shocking, are what we translate as good news, Savior, and Lord. And here's why. During the time of Jesus, the guy who ruled over most of the world was a guy by the name of Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus brought on, so that you history buffs, you'll know this, brought on something that, that is so cool, we still call it by its Latin name, the Pax Romana right? The peace of Rome. It was this thing in which he, he 
the, the, there was all this war going into his rule, the end of his adopted father's rule, broke off, the Roman Empire broke into factions, they all fought, and then he came out on top. And after he came on top, he brought an end to fighting, to end of, of all of the hostilities. And when he did so, the Roman Senate put out, on his birthday, by the way, an announcement that went out to all of the Roman Empire, and it was called the good news of Caesar Augustus, the savior of the empire, and the Lord. So when the angels are coming, and they're coming to these shepherds, and they're declaring to them that, guess what? I bring you good news, petty thieves. Unto you this day is born a savior who is, in fact, the Lord. This is not a kind of soft moment. This is not something caught in a greeting card. This is what this would have meant for those who first heard it is a counterclaim to the great claim of Caesar Augustus that a real king has come. One who is actually going to bring peace. One who will bring that peace that everyone has been looking for. Now here's why this matters. It matters because of a singular hope. If you're a Christian here this morning or if you're not, this is something we all need to understand. Jesus is not a provincial deity, right? He's not simply one God among many. And, and listen, in the ancient world, the one that Jesus was born into, everybody had their own little God, right? It's not as if, like, this is a new thing that postmodernism created pluralism. This was f- true in the Roman world. Like every little town, every region, every area had their god or goddess, and all of them were welcome so long as they could all line up under this one thought that none of them was the biggest. That all of them could kind of exist together because we all kind of believe that we have our little deity, and our little deity will never mess with the greater reality. What was the greater reality? The Pax Romana. Why, why is it that we think that Romans killed Christians? You see, it wasn't because this little ragtag group proclaimed that you Romans are bad. You're just bad. You need to come be good. God will tell you how to be good. It was not that. It was because they held a dangerous belief that Jesus is the Lord the Lord of all, and that all your little provincial deities, all these little things that you look to, that you hope to, all these things that we put our trust in, they're not real. They're just an illusion. They were seen as disruptive of the civil life, unpatriotic. See, in our current context, this is, this is the funny thing. Uh, what, what Christians often bemoan is this like moral relativism, things like that. Like All of this is just another form of the same thing that was going on in the Roman world, right? You've got your God, I've got mine. As long as we all worship at the altar of pluralism, we can all get along. As long as your God doesn't make any claims against my God, we're fine. As long as we keep religion out of life, everything is fine. And see, it does this under this kind of umbrella belief, this, this absolute one, this absolute truth 
that the only truth everyone must adhere to is that the individual is the source and goal of all truth. That's that dirty little secret, isn't it? The dirty little secret of pluralism. The only one that everyone is fine being intolerant towards are the intolerant people. The one who disagrees with that. See, the Bible does not claim that the baby lying in the manger is one hope or even the best hope, like the best option out there. No, 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 no. If that were the case, the angels would have said, to you this day is born a Savior who is Christ, one of the Lord's, but you cannot line Jesus up with all the other gurus. He doesn't give you that option. And nor does the rest of the Bible. He is good news for all people. And as soon as I say that, some of us are like, Rick, that is really, really closed-minded. You're right. It is. But everyone makes statements like this. We all have them, right? Because the statement that no religion has all the truth, right, that, that, that no one religion has all the truth is based on this unexamined, absolute presupposition, this absolute truth that no religion can't have all the truth. As a matter of fact, the only way to make that statement is to, know, to believe that you have all the truth and you can evaluate what everyone else is saying. Right? I'm sure you've seen that famous example, right? The famous example that, that all religions are kind of like a bunch of blind men feeling the elephant. How they got put in front of the elephant, we don't know. What it is that they're trying to do to the we don't know, but they're there and they're all just describing part of the elephant. But do you realize, and maybe, maybe you've never realized this, that that illustration assumes that you can see the elephant that you're the one who sees the whole picture. The entire assumption is based on the, the, the fact that I can tell that you, you idiots are just blindly touching this trunk that you think is this, and it's really just the trunk of an elephant. And the only reason you could even say that is because you know that you see it. And if you can see it, you can evaluate all the dummies. But let's not be too hard on that. Every truth claim is like that, right? The unexamined belief that all truth claims are culturally determined and seek to control others. We love that one too in our culture. We never realize that the only place that such an idea could come about is a Western European context that then imposes that on everyone else, right? That, that it actually is a way that we are trying to control everyone else. Like every truth claim by its very nature is closed-minded. It is. But for whatever reason it is that these angels believe that all people need good news, need a Savior, need a Lord, which we'll get to in a second, they are very clear that if you are going to find one, if you're going to find a Savior, a Lord, if you're going to find good news, it is in Jesus or it is in nowhere else. Okay? Now, let's get to that. It's a universal song, but it's also a holistic one. So uh, the angels finish up this saying, and suddenly an entire host of angels show up. Now, before I move to what they sing, let me just say this. When, when our text says host, okay, a host of angels, we need to understand that this does not mean a bunch of glowing dudes in choir robes, okay? A host, the host of heaven is the way the Bible talks about an angelic army. They are not in choir robes, they are in armor. They're arrayed for battle, not for singing, they just happen to also sing. Host is a military term, right? When, when God is called the Lord of hosts, it means the commander of the heavenly armies. Like, 
He is the, the, the fighting God, that, that kind of thing. And so this isn't the song of a choir. This is the song of a victorious army. And I know this is a far cry from your little willow tree figurines, but it's true. So anyway, you know. Uh, so, but anyway, then, and then they sing. They sing in, in verse 14. I'm not hating on willow tree figurines. They're beautiful, but not real. Uh, in verse 14, glory to God in the highest and upon the earth, peace. Now, stop there. Peace. There is probably no more loaded term in the Bible than the term peace. See, when you and I hear that, we tend to simply think of stopping hostilities, right? I would hope to think that we are all, regardless of what time of year it is, praying for peace in parts of the world that have this hostility. And what we were praying for is, would you please just stop killing people? Please. And that is involved when the Bible says peace. Trust me. Yes. But it does not stop there. That word peace is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word shalom. And it is a, is a concept that the Old Testament uses to talk about the way in which God created the world. And yes, it was a world with, he created the world in such a way that, yes, there we're not fighting each other, but it was more than that. It was, it was where all of our relationships lined up perfectly. God is a relational God, right? God in three persons, as Christians believe. And, and, and as a relational God, he created the world relational, not mechanistic. And so it's made along the lines of these relationships. And, 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 and that means that our you know, relationship between God and us, and us and us, and us and each other, and um, us and creation. Like all of these things are meant to line up. And in the beginning, they did. But here's the really important part. The Bible tells us that our relationship with God, a dependent relationship with God in particular, kind of the, the primary relationship from which all the others kind of find their way of holding together. <laughs> the others can't seem to hold together. If that one's messed up, that, that, that we broke that one, right? It's kind of like the, the capstone in an arch, right? You know, you engineers, you know this, I can't stand math but you you put stones together and then you put this capstone in and it kind of structurally holds the whole thing together if you want an arch to fall you just take the top stone out and the thing will eventually collapse and and that's the way this works our relationship with God is like that capstone if you pull it out the rest fall apart and shalom describes that state of everything holding together exactly as it's supposed to does it mean no hostility yes but to pray, as the Bible would, for peace in those places where the world is broken right now, where there is hostilities, would not just simply mean that they stop killing each other. It would mean that they begin loving each other. Which is way more than most of us hope could ever happen. It means that everything is lining up exactly as God intended when he created everything. Can you imagine that? It's hard, isn't it? John Lennon tried, but his was the imagination of pluralism. Let's just get rid of all the stuff that we think is actually causing the conflict. And it's hard to imagine because that's not our experience. We live in a world where, where all of these relationships are so messed up that we can't even begin to fathom. Like some of us, we, 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 
We were even raised in families where you, you think, you're like, my family's supposed to be my context and my safest relationships. And those are the places, especially at this time of year, we dread the most. I don't want to get near those people. Right? We don't even know where to start. We know, we know that we were made for shalom, but we don't have it. And the Bible tells us that all the problems we see in the world are actually rooted in one event. One event. We were made for that shalom, but we broke a, a fundamental relationship. The fundamental relationship. We broke it. We betrayed God. We were created to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In other words, all that we are to lovingly depend on him. That that is what we were made for. To be turned outward. And as we're lovingly depending on him, that frees us to, to love and to care for others and everything else. We don't need anything from anyone else because everything we need is coming from him. That we don't need to use anyone or anything because he is everything for us. But we betrayed him because we came to believe that God wasn't for us. It's terrifying to have that thought in your head that the one person that you're supposed to depend on isn't really for you. And that's what we believed. And so we betrayed him. We doubted his heart and we betrayed him. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And because we broke that fundamental relationship, all the others are broken too, right? Sin, betraying, betraying God kind of infected everything. And we see this. Like if, if you're familiar with the Bible, you, you know this. You, you've read this. Like you go from Genesis 3 where everything falls apart and the very next story is two brothers, two famous brothers, one killing the other because he felt insecure. He felt insecure felt shame. And the Bible's claim is that the brokenness that we see in the world, the brokenness we see in our homes, in our neighborhoods, on the news, in the mirror, that all of that stems from exactly the same place. There's no difference. And some of you, you know, as I say that, you're thinking, what are you talking about, no difference? I look in the mirror, but man, I'm not like those people over there in that other part of the world that are doing some awful things right now. Yeah, I know. But what I am telling you is that all of that stuff comes from the same place. Now Jesus tells us that, the, that, that it's not our behavior that messes us up. It's the fact that we're messed up that affects our behavior. That it's out of our heart that those things come, that our relationships with God, ourself, others, and creation are all messed up. They're all messed up. There's not one that's like pretty good. Like they're all by nature messed up now. Here's what I mean. We were made for a dependent relationship with God, but by nature that's broken now. So what does that mean? Well, it means that some of us show that brokenness by wandering far from him and going like, I can't, I can't, I know I can't uh, measure up. I, kn I don't know exactly what it is that he wants, but I know I can't do it. And so I'm just going to go as far from there as I can. But others of us, we don't do that. Instead, we slave for his approval. Because we think, I, if I work hard enough, I can, I can get him to like me, to do things for me. And in either case, we're relying on ourselves. See, we're made for all of our, with all of our being to love God and others, but now our relationship with ourselves is broken. For some of us, that, that means like a, a, like a fract that we're fractured internally, like we have, we have certain voices in our head that, that hit us as soon as we wake up and look in the mirror that, 
that tell us that we're messed up, that we're awful, that we're hit with shame and guilt and all this stuff. And Others of us, though, that's, that's not the case. We have a God complex. And we think that we've got to rescue everybody, and we are able. Boy, are we able. See, we're made for a relationship of mutual self-giving towards others, but now those relationships are broken. And so for some of us, that means we use people a lot. We use them so that they can give us what we want. We use them for, to think well of us so that we can get a status. We use them to take care of us so that we can have safety. We use them to, um, to get rid of that feeling of emptiness to satisfy us. Others of us, though, we, we wouldn't dare do that. We, we simply offer ourselves to be used by them. Because being used seems far more likely than being loved, right? And finally, like we're made to steward all of creation and to labor for the glory of God and the good of others. But now, because of sin, that relationship is broken. And that means that some of us, some of us in this room feel like carried along by fate. There's nothing, we, we have no power, no impact, no nothing. We are just carried along victims of everything that comes along in front of us, beside us while others of us are workaholics believing that if we just work hard enough, we can master everything. Any of that sound familiar? Yeah, of course not. See, this is the problem that the Bible declares, which is what makes the declarations of the angels so audacious. They aren't simply declaring that this Savior is coming to bring warm feelings or even spiritual knowledge or a better life after you die. They are declaring that he is coming to mend the world. To set your neuroses right. To set my anger issues right. To set all of our brokenness right. That he is coming to do that. To bring shalom, to heal what we've broken, to make the world in all of its glorious ruin right again. And so if there is hope to be found for all of these things to be set right, it is in and through Jesus. Now, if you're still awake, and this is strange to you, uh, what you're probably thinking right about now is, okay, but Rick, how? Like, we're in a Christian church, right? And, and if, if, even if you aren't a Christian and you just kind of like wandered in here or someone brought you here and you're looking around and you're like, I know you're saying that Jesus mends the world, but these people do not look mended to me. Yeah. Or maybe you're just thinking, but you do not look mended to me. And you'd be right. You'd be right. How do we do this? And this is where we come to the fact that this is a gracious song. Because look, it isn't like Christianity is the first uh, I, uh, the first worldview, religion, whatever, to declare that there's a problem and we have a fix to it. That is what every worldview does. Every worldview has, has a way, has, this is what's wrong with the world and this is how we fix it. It is the how that makes Christianity so unique. It is what is, is the reason that the angels are declaring here good news and not good advice. They're declaring something that is taking place and it begins with singing glory. Look again at verse 14. They say, glory to God in the highest. Now, this is a declaration of praise. To give glory, that's a very churchy word, to glorify and all that stuff. That's a churchy word. 
in the original, it, it literally means, well, in the, in the Hebrew that the Greek is translating from, it literally means like weightiness, like heaviness. Like something that is glorious is something that has the appropriate level of weight to it, gravitas, so to speak. To, glory, to glorify God, to give God glory in the highest means to, to make much of him. To give him the gravitas that he is deserving. And now, on the one hand, if you spend any time reading the Bible, especially the Psalms, uh, you, you won't be surprised by this because God is always getting glory. But, but it sounds weird, right? And that's because it raises the question. And I think it raises the question for most of us, whether we're Christians or not, if we're being honest with ourselves. Why? Like, why should he get that glory? Why are we supposed to make much of him? And we wonder this because in every worldview, every religion, every philosophy besides Christianity, the entire point of it is, is here's a plan of action to take. Now go get it done. Right? It doesn't matter if you're talking about Islam with its pillars, Buddhism with its path, New Age with its seeking some kind of personal enlightenment, Hinduism with its karmic cycles, or frankly Nietzsche and his will to power. Every one of them basically says, here's what's wrong with the world, here's what you need to do to go fix it, whether that world is the world or the world. It's, here's how you go and fix it. That is how we understand religion. That's how we understand everything. And so logically, why should, why should I be giving him glory? I got work to do. But Christianity is different. Because like I said, it's not, it's not good advice. It's good news. It's not a declaration of things you should do. It's a declaration of what God has done. The news is that in, in this song is that God has come to rescue us. It's not that a teacher has come to give us some new ideas, or a lawgiver has come to give us new rules to keep, or that a guru has come to give us a new sense of self-worth. It's that God has come to rescue us, and that is why so much is to be made of him. Christianity is not about what you do. It's about what God has done. And these angels are giving glory because in that dirty little feeding trough, God has finally come to heal the world. There he is. And we're to make much of him. Now, finally, let's talk about singing grace. Look at that last phrase. Uh, in the ESV, it says, peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Now, most of us remember Linus. Uh, if you're anything like me, I was telling Steve this the other day, that long before I ever was a Christian, uh, I memorized this passage of scripture because of Linus. Uh, and, and so we all remember that it's goodwill to men, right? The good old King James. A literal translation would be peace among those in whom he delights. That would be the literal translation. Now, there are two ways to take this phrase. The first is that it means that peace is towards humanity who God, all of humanity, who God delights in. Okay, that's that statement is, is true. God does delight in humanity, but it, shalom does extend beyond just humanity. It's about for the world. And the second way to take this is that God will undoubtedly bring shalom for those he takes delight in. But who are they, right? That's the question. You see, this, this statement is insanely important. What gets us God's delight? 
Again, the, the presupposition of religion is that what gets us God's delight is uh, my actions, my activities, my, my service, my worship, my good conscience, my ability to outperform my neighbor, right? As a matter of fact, most of us, we're really not worried about God's delight. We just don't want his anger, right? That's why it's, it's the whole outrunning the bear thing. I don't need to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun Jim, right? I don't need to outrun the bear. And if I can't outrun Jim, I will trip him. And then the bear will eat him and I will get away. And that's the way we think about God. I don't need his delight. I just need him to not be angry with me. What do I need to do? Or who do I need to show is worse? Of course. That's the presupposition of religion. I do this and I get God to like me. Christianity says something completely different. God does what he does completely apart from you. It's this little word that we call grace. Something that is unmerited unearned, undeserved. Listen, this, this is a declaration that God is making here, that these angels are making, not an invitation. It's a declaration of news, not an invitation to get to work. Christianity from first to last is about God's work on our behalf. It is about God loving the unlovely, about God finding the lost, about God healing the broken. It is about God giving life to the dead. The angels are singing this statement at this time, right after Jesus was born, because that is why he came in the first place. We were made for a dependent relationship with God, and so if our relationship with God is to be restored, we will need to depend on him. Jesus came and lived perfectly for us. He died sacrificially to bear the weight of our betrayal of God and he rose again to give life to the world. The certainty that they are saying, the certainty of this peace, of this shalom, would be, the, the very fact that they can be certain of it is all because of Jesus. It's all because of him. So we place our faith in him, we depend on him, we repent of the ways that we've been placing our hope in ourselves and we return to him. So this song is universal. It's universal because the only possible way to return to dependence on God is Jesus. It's holistic because our restoration to God will allow all the other relationships to line back up the way they're supposed to. It's gracious because he did this not because we did something to make him, but because he delights in those he saves. Could you imagine anything better than that? Listen, let me leave you with this. Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning and you're thinking through this and it seemed like the right time of year to start doing church again. And you're like, I don't know about any of this stuff, right? right? You're loud. And, okay, you seem convinced. That sounds great. But I don't know. I, I grant that. Listen. I've been there. I was not raised in the church. I get it. But if Lennon could sing a song imagining a world that had some semblance, some uh, strange image in shadow of what we're talking about here, 
could you imagine something better than what they're talking about? Better than a God who you've betrayed who loves you? Better than a God that you've betrayed who isn't waiting for you to get your act together? Who came to rescue you? Is there anything better? Even if it's not true, wouldn't you want it to be? Maybe we just start there. What better Savior could you imagine? Would you pray with me? Lord, we do delight in you. We give you glory. And, and I say that knowing that all of us have various degrees of, the, of how much we want to make much of you this morning. Even the best of us struggle. Even the best of us are having a hard time making much of you all the time. Or any of the time. And so have mercy on us. But we give you praise, Jesus, because you are the one, the true Lord, the true Savior, the one whose birth and birthday is true gospel because of all that you've done. Our God, continue to break down our pride where we think we, that you owe us something. And as you break that down, as, as we look smaller and smaller in our own eyes, would you continue to look bigger and bigger? And as you do so, show us that the bigger you are, the more grace and the more love we get to experience. Thank you for Jesus and for his work. Turn our hearts towards, towards him. Over this, especially over this next week as everything conspires to crowd him out. We ask it in Christ's name.